electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Deirdre Boza, in for Kelly Evans. Here's what is ahead on the show. Stocks are down for the fifth straight day. The Nasdaq down more than 8% in that time. Now the worries are piling up. China in COVID shutdown. New chips hit by, chip stocks rather, hit by new government restrictions. We haven't even mentioned jobs yet. Employment report, that's out tomorrow, as you probably know. So will the labor market continue to be strong? And what does that mean for the market? Plus, we've got chips, cybersecurity, and yoga pants coming up in earnings exchange. We will get you ready for all of those reports. Let's start, though, with Dominic Chu and the market numbers. Dom, ugly start for September. We knew it was coming. And, and, and we're drifting back down towards session lows right now at this point here. So, Dee, to your point, it is right across the screen here. And to give you an idea of just how deeply it's gotten so far today, we're down 46 points right now. At the lows of the session, we were down 52 at the highs, we were still down 19, so that's the range. We're down 46 right now, 39.08 the last trade there. Still trying to kind of figure out whether or not we're going to hold these levels. The Dow Industrials down 185 points, half of 1% declines, and the composite for the NASDAQ, 11,557, down 258 points. 2% declines here, the real outsized decliner. Now, the reason why a lot of folks are paying attention right now is 3,900. That's the level that a lot of folks are watching right now for an area of support. At the lows of the day, we were at 39.03. We're at 39.08 right now. And the reason why is you're kind of seeing a little bit of that move here. The last time we saw this is just around mid-July. Not again the lows that we saw in June, but still whether or not that pullback that's taking place right now is going to hold at these levels could be something where a lot of traders say, hey, maybe this is an indicator of whether we retest some of those June lows. Keep an eye on that 3900 level for the S&P 500. One other place to watch is interest rates. They're moving higher across the board, but the 10-year note yield in particular is up 13 basis points or 0.13%. Three spots, three spot two six the last trade. Remember the cycle high here was three spot four eight. We are now at the highest levels that we've seen going all the way back to June, in the middle of June rather, June 21st or thereabouts. So watch that 10-year note yield. Yes, the economy may be slowing down because of higher rates. And as a result, watch the commodity producers, specifically oil and gas and certain metals on the base side of things. WTI crude down another 3% today, $86.87. The energy sector, again, an underperformer today, Valero Energy, Schlumberger among the energy names that are down 4 to 6%. And by the way, I'm going to throw Freeport McMoran D in here as well because it's not just gold, but it's copper as well. And those copper prices taking a dip on those economic concerns down about 6.5% right now. Freeport Oil, all things to watch, D. I'll send things back. Yeah, which could be helpful on the inflation front. Um, thank you very much, Dom. Let's take a closer look at what is putting pressure on the markets today. We have team coverage all lined up. Eunice Yoon is live in Beijing with new lockdowns and the impact on manufacturing and supply chains. Christina Partsinevelos is here with me at CNBC HQ with the fallout from U.S. restrictions on chip sales to China. And we've got Steve Leisman to round it out with what we can expect from arguably one of the most important job reports in a while with less than 24 hours to go now. Eunice, let's start with you. Chengdu, not a small city. 
Not a small city at all. This is uh, yet another Chinese megacity that has locked down. As of tonight, it's 21 million residents have been ordered to stay at home. For the next four days, those residents are going to be mass testing. But it's very unclear if the mass testing or the stay-at-home order will really end on Sunday. Now, Chengdu is the southwestern industrial base for multinational companies like Intel, Toyota, as well as Foxconn. Uh, Foxconn says that its Chengdu plant is operating normally in a closed loop system. Uh, Chengdu authorities have said that other factories can make similar arrangements where workers live on site. Now, the Chengdu lockdown is just the latest of several, a series of COVID curbs at factory hubs as well as port cities. Uh, the port city of Dalian is imposing a targeted lockdowns. Uh, Shenzhen has ordered its people to, or urged its people not to leave the city. And then port city Tianjin has undergone four mass testing rounds since the weekend. This is an especially sensitive time where the Beijing uh, leadership is going to be meeting in just uh, six weeks. Uh, they are uh, likely uh, going to be choosing um, President Xi Jinping to take an unprecedented third term. And the authorities here want to make sure that nothing, including uh, major outbreaks, distract from that. Dee? Eunice, thank you very much. We're going to stick with China and the restrictions the U.S. government has put in place on some chip sales to the country. Christina Partsinovelos has those details and more on the fallout for the chip sector. Christina, as we look at NVIDIA, wow, down more than 11 percent. Yeah, well, let's start with the, the news that we saw yesterday. The United States implemented new licensing, licensing requirements to stop the transfer of cutting-edge technology to Russian and Chinese firms, especially any associated with the military. So that means chip firms like NVIDIA are caught in the crosshairs. So NVIDIA, you just talked about the stock. It actually just hit a 52-week low on the news that it would have to get a license to work with its Chinese customers. It doesn't do business in Russia. And to break it down, NVIDIA has two major AI chips, artificial intelligence chips. One is called the H100, and that's still in its development stages. And the other is called the A100, and that's been on the market for about three years or so. But today, the latest news is NVIDIA found out the U.S government is allowing them to continue to develop the H100. So that's the one that is not on the market just yet with its Chinese partners. So that was a green light for them. As for the other chip, the A100, that one will still need a license to sell to mainland China. But the company can continue to ship the chip from its Hong Kong facility to countries like the UK or France. NVIDIA, though, anticipates a $400 million loss in revenue per quarter from China, whereas AMD, it's not just NVIDIA that's going to get hit. AMD said they don't necessarily expect the licensing uh, requirements to have a significant effect on its business, so they didn't provide a monetary amount. But some Wall Street analysts from Wedbush, Jefferies, point out that the biggest users of chips in China are cloud and internet providers, not the military, and that there are no direct local substitutes. Of course, China is definitely not happy about the move, vocalizing it today. Nonetheless, the news hitting NVIDIA at a time when the company is facing a setback in gaming revenue and data center sales are growing, but at a decelerating pace. Yeah, those shares down nearly 30% over the month. Christina, thank you so much. Investors also anxiously awaiting tomorrow's big jobs report. Steve Leesman, we are back to good as bad, bad as good when it comes to the number that Wall Street wants to see. What is the consensus? Another strong jobs report, Deirdre, expected tomorrow, and that is the concern for markets, as you say. 
They're looking for at least some softness and slack to develop in the job market that would give the Fed comfort that inflationary pressures, at least from the labor supply standpoint, are easing. The consensus looks for 318,000 jobs. That is down from the half million plus we did in July, but still above trend. The unemployment rate forecast to remain unchanged at the low 3.5%. Wages pretty healthy, up 0.4% to an annual rate of 5.3%. There was, I guess, unfortunately here again, some good job news today. Good jobless claims ticked down for the third straight week. And on the employment component of the ISM manufacturing index, it rose to its highest level since January. Markets pricing for the peak funds rate to rise to 3.97%, up from around 380 uh, as the bond and stock market look to be taking more seriously the Fed's message that it will be hiking and remaining high or at an elevated level for some time. But the economy, it's going to need to cooperate by creating slack. And that means a soft jobs report may be better for the market. But a different way that I'm looking at this is is as follows. Whether there are job gains in the hot parts of the economy or if they're being created in places like healthcare and leisure and hospitality, which still lag behind their pre-pandemic employment levels. I think that's less of a concern, folks. Yeah, that's good nuance, Steve. Thank you very much. So given all of those pressure points, where can we expect the markets to go from here? My next guest says he would not be surprised if we dip below the early summer S&P lows in the next couple of months. And he brings us three names he says are well-positioned in this environment. Joining me now is Michael Cugliano, president and portfolio manager of Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds. Uh, Michael, how are you positioned heading into the jobs report tomorrow? And if it is softer than expected, do you think that the markets will take that as a positive signal? Or is what Fed Chair Jay Powell said still so top of mind that he's going to be aggressive? He needs to see more than one report, more than one month's worth of data. Yeah, good afternoon. Um, we're positioned pretty diversified right now. We have a mix of stocks and bonds, U.S. and non-U.S., plus precious metals, real estate, commodities, et cetera. So we've always been a diversified fund. We haven't changed that stance at all right now, given what's out there. In fact, we think in this environment, hedging your bets and having multiple avenues um, you know, better protects you from minimizing downside risk as well as avenues to profit. So that's where we're at specifically. Um, on the jobs number tomorrow, we're long-term investors, so we're not doing anything special in terms of positioning. Um, and, and I do think that regardless of what happens, the, the Fed, through, through Powell, through other Fed commentators over the last week since Jackson Hole, have been largely putting cold water on the, the fire with respect to reversing and cutting rates or that this is going to be a quick fix. Um, if the Fed holds true to their voices, and we, we know sometimes that's a challenge, they've changed direction mm-hmm. before, so that's always a risk and possibly a risk to the upside for equities. But given the way they're talking right now, if they hold true to their words, um, this is going to be a long slog with higher rates, and I believe would likely re- lead to a recession in the next 12 months if we're not already in one. Okay, so let's talk about your picks then, how you kind of protect yourself or your portfolio in this environment. You're focusing on value that is profitable, companies with pricing power, control cost structures. Who are you looking at? Yeah, I mean, the three that, that I mentioned, Lockheed Martin in the aerospace defense area, um, Costco uh, Wholesale, the, uh, the retailer, um, and, uh, and Chevron, the, the, uh, energy, the diversified energy producer. All of those have dividends, um, Chevron and... Lockheed are trading at you know reasonable market multiple. Chevron still trading below market multiple. Uh, Lockheed Martin trading roughly market multiple. Costco's a little expensive. I'd wait for a downturn. But these are stocks that yeah they are defensive. They should hold up on the revenue side given the economic environment we may enter into. 
And so for a long-term investor, they have dividends. They're reasonable places to put money in the stock market, um, which itself is a risky asset class right now, given the backdrop that may occur. And Michael, I know that you're not a fan of cash because of the rate of inflation. However, there are a number of money managers that think this is a safe place to hide. As you say, we could retest the lows that we saw back at the beginning of summer. Um, Do you think that in some cases for longer term investors, this could be a place to hide for now? Well, cash is earning you negative eight or nine percent right now. I think you can do better through a diversified portfolio. And so I think it depends on your liquid needs, um, you know, uh, how safe you feel, et cetera, et cetera. But if you want to stay invested, um, then I think you can do that at a rate that may exceed the cost of holding Mm. cash at the moment while still being liquid. I mean, look, short term treasury funds, for example, we run one. I mean, it's a negative one percent, you know, one and a half percent. So you know, you can uh, you can manage risk and manage downside while still outperforming a pure cash investment right now. Then deploy it when the, the dust settles and, and the sky's clear and you can you have a better idea what may be occurring down the road. There's a lot of unanswered questions right now. Yeah. And so it's a little bit of playing defense and minimizing downside mm-hmm. risk while putting yourself in position rather than making strong, um, high-conviction bets. At least that's what we're seeing. Right. And, Michael, it is a tough environment, um, especially for growth stocks, which we have seen come down um, a lot. However, is there an opportunity in some of them? We were just talking about NVIDIA down what more than 11 percent today, almost 30 percent over the last month. But this is a category leader. Do you find any value in some names like this in the tech space? Yeah, well, we actually own that one. So, yeah, we're familiar with it. Yeah, I do. We tend to invest in a diversified mix of equities across sectors. So there certainly are some interesting technology stories, for example, that have sold off. You know, a lot of the tech stocks were selling at huge multiples to sales and other crazy metrics. A lot of those have come down. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're cheap, but they're more reasonable. And if you can find a way to sort of grow into a market multiple over time, maybe in an improving economy down the road when the cost of capital, interest rate issues get resolved, then for a long-term investor, this is an area to nibble. But you got to realize they could go down further, um, even though they've come down quite a bit. And there's a lot of names across tech and sub, sub, you know, subsectors in tech. Mm-hmm. NVIDIA would be one. I would look at some of the enterprise softwares um, as another example. Um, and we're certainly involved in those areas as well, again, as a long-term investment. But from a safety standpoint, I don't think they're as defensive as maybe right. the names like as we see uh, yields rise as well. Michael, thank you so much, Michael Cugino. I apologize for butchering your name at the start of this. <laughs> Coming up, we are continuing our week-long State of Jobs series. The CEO of Recruiter.com joins us with what he calls a tale of two job markets. That's next. Plus, pager duty, Lululemon, Broadcom are at least 30% off their recent highs. So what should you watch when they report after the bell today? That is all ahead in Earnings Exchange. We are back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time.
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. As we count down to tomorrow's big jobs report, weekly jobless claims suggest the labor market remains resilient. But as new data from Recruiter.com shows, that depends greatly on the industry. Knowledge workers are still in high demand, with recruiter sentiment up for the second month in a row and candidate sentiment at the highest level it has been all year. But recruiters worked on filling fewer roles last month than any other month this year. And while the majority of recruiters reported an increase in August applicants, we're also seeing a growing number of companies announcing layoffs. Reports just crossing that T-Mobile has laid off employees in its engineering and network divisions. For more, let's bring in Recruiter.com CEO Evan. So, um, Evan, thanks for being with us today. What do you make of this latest headline? We're getting more and more of these lately. I know that your survey shows that knowledge workers still in high demand. Are you anticipating that trend to soften over the coming months? Yeah, so first of all, thanks for having me back, Deidre. Um, we really are seeing this uh, tale of two job markets. You know, as you mentioned, uh, the recruiter sentiment is up uh, 3.6 out of 5. The candidate sentiment is up. Knowledge workers are still in high demand. But as you pointed out, Uh, the workload, meaning the number of roles that the average recruiter in our survey reported working on, it was 16 last month and uh, two months ago, and now 10. That's a huge drop. And what we think that that means is that companies are now being more careful in what they're hiring, no longer just overhire and overhire and overhire, but really focused on recruiting the right people. We're also seeing hybrid roles uh, now uh, replacing in-person as the number one slot compared to hybrid, in-person, or remote. That means those are really the knowledge workers, the people that are being able to go back in the office uh, three days a week, work from home two days a week, as opposed to uh, the factory workers where you got to be in the office uh, five days a week. But the other market, as you mentioned, are all the layoffs that we keep reading about. So it feels like some of this data, though, is at odds with each other. Overall candidate sentiment increased over the summer. However, average number of roles that recruiters are working on, that has plunged more than cut in half this year. Is there a disconnect here? Are people looking for jobs, not really understanding how the market's turning and how quickly it's turning? That, that's right. I, look, I think the job mobility, uh, which we have predicted earlier in the year to really start growing significantly as the sort of the great resignation stopped, is really picking up. You know, th- if you looked at the data uh, that came out yesterday from the Jolt report, the difference between the number of people that quit in July of 22 versus July of 21 is only 2%. Hmm. 4.1 plus million people quit both July 22 and July 21. It's a 2% difference. There are 11 million open jobs. Finding talent is hard. It's a hard thing to do. Now, the larger companies that were well-equipped, uh, sophisticated with tools and recruiters and all the services that they have access to were able to not just hire the talent that they wanted, but overhired. And that came at the expense of the companies that needed that talent, that couldn't find that talent. And we're certainly Mm -hmm. seeing that rebalancing now. A term you hear more and more these days, Evan, it's being thrown around a lot, is quiet quitting. People not actually quitting their jobs, but taking a step back. Um, When we talk about layoffs, though, or hiring freezes, do you think that people are going to have to pick up more work? What is the sentiment that you're seeing? And also, I wonder, is it becoming harder to fill in-person jobs? 
Um, so I, I think the companies get to decide. I, I think you're seeing companies figure out, are they gonna be a teaching organization where they're hiring people uh, to teach them how to learn, how to be good employees, whether that's uh, the banking uh, companies that are forcing companies, uh, forcing employees back into the office. And obviously you have factories where you, you really have no choice. Uh, but I think companies are deciding what they wanna be like, what culture do they wanna create? And candidates are following suit. Um, I think that candidates now, it still is a candidate's market. I saw a great report that uh, it's like the slowest, uh, the fastest amount of time that an unemployed person was able to find a mm -hmm. job in like decades, decades. I think it was like 15 weeks or something like that. Really incredible how fast people are able to find a job that actually want a job. Yeah, but it feels like there could be a huge shift that is already underway. Um, Evan, thanks so much for being with us and your insights. Evan, thanks so, so much. Recruiter.com, thank you. Still ahead, extreme weather and severe droughts are fueling investor interest in water. We will break down the numbers and speak with the CEO of a key, one of the key water players, that's next. And as we had to break, let's get some show and tell, where we show you a chart and tell you the story. Shares of C3 AI, they're having their worst day ever after missing revenue estimates and giving weak guidance for the rest of the year. Here is what the CEO, Tom Siebel, told us on Tech Check this morning about the macro environment. We are seeing our customers in the chemical industry, the oil and gas industry, um, the wood products industry, pharmaceutical industries, uh, these guys are gearing up for recession. They are on recession planning, and they are really rethinking their business processes. So there's no question. Now, it's not the only company worried about the macro headwinds. We also spoke to the CEOs of Okta, Samsara, and Pure Storage this morning. Some reported better results than others, but all of them mentioned similar concerns around the demand picture, and they're all getting slammed today. We are back right after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to The Exchange. Take a look at markets right now to start off the month of September, which is historically a tough one. The Dow is fighting to try and get to positive territory. We are close or at session highs. It was down as much as nearly 300 points. Now just lower by about one-tenth of a percent. The Nasdaq still the underperformer, down about one and seven-tenths of a percent. However, it was down more than 2% earlier this morning. Um, take a look as well at Asana, Datadog, Zscaler, Fastly. They are all lower by around 10%. The Wisdom Treat Cloud Computing ETF, it is on pace for its longest weekly losing streak since May. We talked about some of the challenges facing software. Intel, take a look, not down as much as some of the other chip names we also talked about today, but it is trading at its lowest level since June of 2016. Shares are down nearly 50% from their recent high. Let's get over to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler. Peter, thank you very much. One student has died and another injured in an apparent stabbing at a high school in Jacksonville, North Carolina. A teacher was also injured. Police say a student suspect was arrested shortly after the attack and there is no ongoing threat to the public. In Indianapolis, a 22-year-old man has been charged in the fatal shooting of a Dutch soldier and the wounding of two others. Police say more people involved in the shooting could face criminal charges. 
And two top Trump White House lawyers will reportedly appear before a grand jury probing the January 6th attack on Capitol Hill. Former White House counsel Pat Cipollone and former deputy counsel Pat Philbin are expected to answer questions after being subpoenaed. They will be the highest profile witnesses yet to testify before that grand jury. On the news tonight, the other Trump lawyers trying to convince a judge to appoint a special master to review documents recovered at Mar-a-Lago. Join us tonight. I'll be there in for Shep to look at their case and their chances for success. That is tonight at 7 Eastern. Deidre, I'll be watching, Tyler. Thank you. Thank you. Still ahead, Broadcom, Patriot Duty, Lululemon, all on deck with results. What you need to know and how to position on all three of those names, that's up next in Earnings Exchange. Welcome back. Earnings season is winding down, but there are still a few key names reporting after the bell. So let's get to the to today's edition of Earnings Exchange. We've got the action, the story, and the trade on Broadcom, PagerDuty, and Lululemon. First up, Broadcom, the chipmaker, down 3% today, nearly 30% off its highs, on pace for its worst year ever. But its earnings have beaten the street 18 of the past 20 quarters. Christina Partsnevelos has the story. And David Katz, Matrix Asset Investor CIO, has the trades. Christina, let's start with you. What are investors well, looking for? You set it up nicely when you compare it to the, the chip space as a whole. Macro headwinds have been hurting a lot of these companies. But just in June, you had management from Broadcom say that they still anticipate demand to outpace a supply. They believe that the near-term demand is staying pretty strong. Uh, long their lead times, about 28 weeks, so still higher than pre-COVID. And there's a few barometers, those strengths that you're seeing on your screen, too, for this company. The fact that you have still many companies that are upgrading uh, their networking systems driven by 5G. And then you've got, of course, Broadcom broadband connectivity. (laughs) And then uh, they don't have as much exposure to smartphones with the exception of Apple. And we saw strength with Apple, so this is a great customer for them. And their business is primarily based on the subscription-based model. So a lot of strength there. However, storage based chip sector. We yeah. know that's been weak. So can all those three things that I listed to you, can that offset the weakness that we're seeing in storage? Right. David, what do you think? What are you looking for? And do you expect much commentary uh, from management on the VM acquisition? So we, we think Broadcom has been doing well. They will continue to do well. We would not buy the stock in front of earnings because it's been a pretty treacherous earnings season. If you miss, technology has had a lot of misses, misses along with apparel. Uh, so we're wary about stepping in front of it. If you have a six to 12 month time frame, we think the company is very well positioned. It's at a 13 or 14 times earnings pays a nice yield. So we like it over the longer term, have less of a conviction about it over the next week or so. Okay. Uh, next up, let's look at pager duty. It is down 10% ahead of this afternoon's report. It's also on pace for its worst year on record. Christina, the story here as well, another San Francisco company. Yeah, a, a not profitable company, though. So there's a little bit of a difference there. Uh, and very new, very new in the software world. You can pretty much call it like a, a troubleshooting company. They uh, help firms distinguish if there's any uh, problems in their IT infrastructure. However, they have on-call management. So when you have that in place, the problem with PagerDuty, I shouldn't say the problem is there's a lot of competition in the space and their software is integrated with other companies like Datadog, uh, Atlassian, Splunk. And and these are competitors that are building up their infrastructures as well. So uh, although PagerDuty does have a larger market share and that's because they have lower price points than a lot of these competitors, it's still a little bit concerning going forward, especially with demand weakening. 
David, where are you on a pager duty? It's one of these companies that sort of sold itself to investors as a best of breed, but they're having trouble in the current macro environment. We spoke to Okta CEO this morning concerning about demand and some integration. What are you looking for from pager duty? Well, here is the difference between that and Broadcom. They're selling at a pretty excessive valuation. They're selling based on price to sales rather than earnings because they don't earn money. So this is the type of company where the market is expecting 30% revenue growth type of thing. And if they come in any slower than that, the market's going to be pretty punitive to them. So this is one, one we wouldn't buy in front of earnings. But this is an area of the market that we're avoiding. We think stocks are going to do much better over the next year. But we're still very wary about the very high valuation companies. PagerDuty is one of those high valuation companies. Um, thanks. Christina, thank you also for bringing that. We're going to get to one more stock here, Lululemon. It was hot during the pandemic's athleisure phase, but shares are down 26% this year on pace to break a six-year winning streak, but it's still wildly popular with younger consumers, with comp sales still expected to grow 17% year over year. Courtney Reagan has the story here. Courtney. Hi, D. Yeah, you know, Lululemon just seems like it always performs every time we get earnings. And this quarter is not expected really to be any different. A lot of the analysts are thinking that the sales will be sort of at that upper end of where the guidance was and where consensus is, if not beating consensus. Even though, of course, prices have gotten higher on almost everything across the board for everything that we buy, prices have always been higher at Lululemon and they have pricing power. They've proven they've been able to do that. One point of concern, I think, is potentially the level of inventories. At the end of last quarter, inventory was of 74%, less so on a unit basis because part of that was because of the cost increases that was taken on that inventory. But that was pretty hefty level, even though management said they were comfortable with it. So that's one area I'm watching. And then lastly, just again to that pricing point, I think that the margins will hold up much better for Lululemon than many other apparel or retailer retail players right now because they just don't do sales like everybody else does. Um, they, they do do some level of clearance, but they're not doing massive mm -hmm. discount programs because frankly, they don't have to. Those margins are expected again to be pretty impressive. D? Right. So, David, they've got pricing power. It is still discretionary spending, which we know could take a turn for the worse given the macro backdrop. How are you feeling about Lulu? I think it's a very good business, has a great franchise, but we're not crazy about the stock up here. The apparel industry has had a lot of uh, blow ups in the last few months. Uh, and even though Lulu Lemon seems to be getting by that, a difficult headwind like that can put pressure on them. The stock also sells at about 30 times earnings. So we don't like paying 30 times earnings, mm. even for a great apparel company. If you wanted to be in apparel, uh, we think Nike, which has gotten beaten up even more this year, is a better valuation and a better long-term play. So Lululemon, the business should be good. We're just not a fan of the stock here. And Courtney, Lululemon has had a pretty good success in menswear. And I wonder if there's any connection to return to office, what we're hearing from a number of companies. And I know a lot of men who like to wear the pants and you can kind of dress them up to go back. Is there sort of a benefit there that could help this stock hold up better than some of the other retailers? Absolutely, D. I, I know a man that lives in this house that also <laughs> really likes to wear those ABC Lululemon pants for sort of all occasions, work and otherwise. Yeah, their men's business has really, really been on fire. And I think in the beginning, there was a lot of skepticism about it, but really not so much 
anymore. The men's division is really outperforming, and I expect that to be the same thing. I think you make a great point with return to work, but perhaps return to a more casual workplace <laughs> where uh, you can get away with wearing some of those uh, athleisure pants that if you you know don't look super closely, can hardly tell that they are athleisure. So you do bring up a good point there. It'd be very interesting to see if the company calls that out at all. Yeah, my household too. There's someone that likes them. I don't know about you, David, um, but they're comfy and they look good. <laughs> Thank you, Courtney Reagan and David Katz. Quick programming note, Lululemon CEO Calvin McDonald will appear on Closing Bell Overtime tonight to discuss those results and more at 4 p.m. Eastern. You don't want to miss that. And still ahead on the exchange, shares of Apple down about 4% over the past month after coming very close to their all-time high. Will next week's event be the boost that gets it back there? We will discuss after this quick break. Exchange is back in two. Welcome back. We are less than a week away from Apple's big September event, where new iPhones are widely expected to be announced. Steve Kovac joins me now with a preview of what else could be revealed. Steve, you're going to join us on the West Coast next yes, week. Yes, I'm traveling on Tuesday. So let me tell you what to expect. Apple's first in-person launch event is going to be a week uh, next week on Wednesday. The launch is coming amid what Tim Cook has called a, quote, cocktail of headwinds. That means inflation, foreign exchange, supply chain snarls, all of that we've been hearing for the last few months. Still Cook saying last earnings, demand for iPhones remains strong, and Apple is reportedly shifting some production of the new iPhone to India earlier than usual. That should help out in China. For products, here's what we're expecting based on what we've heard. Four iPhone models, two, quote, regular iPhones. And for the first time, that regular model is going to be the max size. And then two Pro models that will lose that notch at the top of the screen and squish those sensors into a cutout in the screen, giving you more uh, screen space to work with. And then a new Apple Watch, including a model reported to have a brand new design, the first major design since the Apple Watch happened in 2015. And that's, people are calling this the Apple Watch Pro. It's going to be like a more rugged, athletic version of it. And then we have iOS 16. Lots of new features here, including Apple Pay Later. This is that buy now, pay later product competing with the likes of Affirm and Klarna. And by the way, you're going to be able to edit those iMessages finally. But more interesting than iPhones and watches, the rumored iPhone hardware subscription plan. That means you pay one fee and you get a new iPhone each year, plus digital services like Apple Music, Apple TV, and iCloud storage. D. What do you think investors are going to be most focused on? I mean, we talk about Apple as a stock. Yeah. It has so much market leadership. It was close to all-time highs in the summer. It's fallen off a little bit and been a little bit more vulnerable to the recent sell-off. Are investors still really interested in the services, how they're going to grow that? Because it's a lot about that, right? Buy now, pay later, yeah. and that subscription service for services. It, it says the last two things I mentioned. One is the buy now, yeah. pay later. Yes, that's just one feature, but it's very clear Apple has very large ambitions in that wallet app. They really think they can replace your physical wallet. You can already upload your driver's license in kind of a limited way, but you can see where they're going with that. And then buy now, pay later. There's the Apple card. So a huge area of growth right there for Apple in the, in the fintech world. And then um, on this iPhone rumored subscription plan, the, that just keeps people locked into the Apple ecosystem. It boosts that all-important services business, and it keeps iPhone sales steady. That's the theory behind that. So if this is priced right and can keep people upgrading, it, automatically upgrading a new iPhone every year instead of hanging on to them three right. to five years like they have been lately, that's good news for Apple. And Cook is going to be busy next week. Yes. He's flying from Code, which we'll be at, the Tech Tech yes. team, and then he's going to go back to Cupertino it's gonna be for a huge the presentation. Apple, it's going to be a huge Apple week, yeah. And at a very good time, right? 
right? We, markets certainly want to hear from Cook. Yep, as Apple goes, so goes the market, yeah. right? And uh, yeah, they need, a, they need a little boost here to make everyone feel a little more optimistic, it seems like. Steve Kovac, thank you very Thanks, much. Steve. I'll see you next week in person again. Absolutely. And coming up, extreme weather events, exasperating concerns about water scarcity. We will talk to the CEO of water technology company, Xylem, about how his company is working to fix shortages around the globe. That's next. Welcome back. The first trust water ETF lowered today, but it is up about 6% over the past two months as droughts take hold across the United States. Pippa Stevens joins me now with the companies working to fix water scarcity and how investors can buy in, Pippa. Hey, Deirdre. Well, the climate crisis is driving increasingly extreme weather events, including record droughts. And that's shining a spotlight on clean and smartly used water. Europe is grappling with its worst drought in more than 500 years. Here in the U.S., 20% of the West is in extreme drought. And over the next three decades, water demand is forecast to grow by 30%. Now, this is a multi-decade theme, and for investors looking to gain exposure, the water universe is large and includes many different types of companies. Several ETFs track the space, offering broad exposure. That's names like the Global X Clean Water Fund, Invesco Water Resources Fund, and the First Trust Water ETF. On a stock-specific level, American Water Works is the largest water utility in the U.S. Others include American States Water and Essential Utilities. Now, one interesting area is companies working towards efficiency. Our drinking water system loses 2.1 trillion gallons of water per year thanks to leaks and faulty pipes. That's according to the American Society of Civil Engineers. Companies like Itron, Badger Meter, and Xylem are using digital solutions to try Deirdre and solve the many, many inefficiencies. Right. And they're becoming more prescient. We talked about solar panels and chips earlier this week, federal support for some of those industries. And it feels like as we face other water crises, like the one in Mississippi, which we'll get to in a moment, what's the outlook for federal support for the sector? So the IRA, that climate bill that was just passed, that does include some funding. That's a little bit more pointed in nature, and that specifically targets agriculture. But it does, it all shines a light on how our infrastructure has to be updated. Right. And the prior infrastructure bill that did include a lot of money for states, for municipalities aimed at increasing water infrastructure. So that's one area where they can receive that federal support to upgrade systems. And Pippa, what is the latest then in Mississippi? Some incredible images coming out of here. Where are we now? Yeah, devastating images out of Jackson. And they declared a state of emergency earlier this week. The governor has said this is very different from a boil water notice, which residents were already under. You know, officials have said if you're going to shower, don't open your mouth. But once again, this comes back to aging infrastructure. And the city's mayor has said that they've been left behind for decades Mm -hmm. and their system was just overrun and aging and old and it needs to be updated. So clearly shining a spotlight on how we need to upgrade infrastructure. Yeah. Pippa, thank you so much, Pippa Stevens. Now, one of the companies at the forefront of working to mitigate the global water crisis is Xylem, helping communities in more than 150 countries become more water secure with technology that manages every part of the cycle, from clean water delivery to wastewater treatment. Joining me now is Patrick Decker, president and CEO of Xylem. Patrick, Pippa gave us a really good view of the inefficiencies in the system. How are you working to improve that? Well, first of all, Jitter, thanks for having me. Uh, really appreciate being on the show. Uh, I'm just back from Stockholm myself, uh, Stockholm Water Week, where uh, once a year, many minds come together around the world and we focus on things like drought. But, you know, today's drought is going to be tomorrow's flood, uh, you know, 
claims. So whether it be the Yangtze River, whether it be the Rhine here in Europe, whether it be droughts in California, uh, whether it be what's going on in Pakistan, you know, Jackson, Mississippi, which we'll talk about. Uh, I don't think any one of you need me to come on and just yeah. remind people how important that is. What I do, and, and these events get attention for obvious reasons, both the human but also the economic toll. Uh, but they're evidence of a bigger trend here, and that is the intersection of climate change and aging infrastructure, where two pieces of data I would offer up to the viewers. Uh, on average, 30% of the water that is intended to be delivered for use is lost along the way for reasons that we can describe. Uh, but secondly, we don't talk much about the impact on business and industry. Uh, the value of water to an industrial client is when they don't have it and they disrupt production mm -hmm. and they have lost economic profits and, and lost jobs, et cetera. So this is a bigger system. But I what I what I want to segue with is the good news is the technologies and the solutions exist to address these issues. And I know we'll we'll dig into that in a bit more. Yeah. And, you know, Patrick, I live in California. I'm only out east for the week, so I'm well aware of, of the drought situation. It plays into our everyday life. Um, I wonder, though, when we talk about these inefficiencies and the technology being there, um, are businesses focused on it? Not water businesses, but businesses that use water and rely on it. Do they have their eye on improving technology and decreasing the waste? I, I, I believe their eyes are turning towards this. Uh, it is happening over time. It happens by geography and industry. And I think that as businesses understand even more that the value of water to them is not the price or the cost of water to their operations. It's actually rather small and minuscule, but it's when they do not have access to sustainable water supply and they're working in uh, areas of water stress and therefore they have stoppage. Uh, but two, you know, there's increasing regulation uh, around treating wastewater as well. And so that cost of regulation is increasing. And uh, I think their, you know, their brands, you know, their images in terms of being responsible in water supply, you know, is becoming increasingly important. And that's why many more of them are taking a, you know, a, a kind of neutral water pledge mm -hmm. in their operations. So I'm optimistic that, uh, you know, the, the movement is being, beginning here. But again, until people understand that the solutions exist to deal with it, we can be frozen by fear. That's the enterprise side, Patrick. What about the fed the government side? We just spoke to Pippa about some federal support. Is it enough? Is the government doing enough right now? And some of that support, what does that mean for your business? I'm, you know, we are encouraged by uh, what's being done, not just in the U.S., but uh, whether it be in China's five-year plan, whether it be some of the EU mandates and funding that are happening there, as well as obviously, you know, within the U.S., uh, it's unfortunate that it's taken these kind of events to galvanize support and attention, but we're optimistic about uh, the focus being put on it. Is it enough? Probably never enough, but I would also say that we have an angle, as I know many other players in the water space do, that the Power of digital and technology has significantly uh, reduced the cost of investment required to address these issues. I, I've got a couple of exa examples I would offer up that are just prototypes of what's happening around the world. Uh, you know, in South Bend, Indiana, we were able to work with them to reduce the amount of capital expenditure required mm -hmm. to deal with severe stormwater overflow uh, and to reduce that overflow by 80%. And they were able to do that at about a half a billion dollar reduction in cost mm -hmm. 
in Malaysia. We've worked with the Malaysian utilities there to help them identify more than 300 leaks in their clean water pipeline that has significantly improved their water uh, distribution, but also significantly reduced their operating costs. So my message here is that we need not be afraid of these things because of a price tag. The technologies exist to do these things right. at significantly lower costs than ever before. Are those moving in lockstep? Last quick question for you, Patrick, but the price of water, I was reading for most people, it's less than the cost of their cell phone bill. Does that increase in the coming years, especially as we face more droughts? It doesn't need to. Water is local, and so obviously that depends upon the state of affairs in any one community. But again, I really want the viewers to understand that the opportunities exist here to do things mm -hmm. in a much more efficient and much more affordable way. Uh, and for that reason, again, I, I am optimistic that we will get through this. Uh, but it is a team sport, and we really yeah. all need to be in this effort together. Well, great insights, Patrick, and great message. Thank you very much for being with us. Patrick Decker with Xylem. Coming up, the semi shortage has put a major crunch on the automakers. We will get August sales numbers next. And as we had to break, stocks off session lows, but they're still in the red. The Nasdaq is still the biggest laggard, down one and eight tenths of a percent. We do want to check on one more earnings move in, and that is mover, and that is Nutanix on pace for its best day ever after beating estimates and giving strong revenue guidance. So there is some green out there, up nearly 25%. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. We want to get to one more thing before we go, and it is another chips-adjacent story. Auto sales have been lackluster thanks to the semi-shortage, and August proved no different. Phil LeBeau joins me now with the numbers. Phil? Yeah, Deidre, these are not real strong numbers, and that's not a surprise. We know that the chip and the supply chain issues continue to hamper the supply of new vehicles. As a result, when you take a look at these August sales results, and we're talking about primarily the foreign automakers here, we'll get Ford tomorrow, and we don't hear from GM until the end of the quarter. Keep in mind, these are in comparison to August of last year, where the supply may have been up or down dramatically. So it's hard to really read much into any of this. The average transaction price in the month of August, 46259 That's the estimate according to J.D. Power. That is close to an all-time high, and that speaks to the fact that there's just not a lot of supply out there. If you're going to buy, you're not getting much of an incentive right now from the dealership or the automaker. The pace of sales, $13.3 That's you know what that does? That brings down the pace of sales for this year below 14 million. And I bring that up because you've got to go back to 2011 to see annual auto sales come in below 14 million for an entire year. And we are on pace for that at this point because the pace of sales right now is 13.7 million. Take a look at Toyota, Honda, Hyundai. And again, the thing to keep in mind is that they've got limited production in part because of the supply mm -hmm. of chips as well as the supply chain being fairly fragile, Deirdre. So at the end of the day, when you're looking at the auto stocks right now, right. they're just sort of in this period here where they can't get a whole lot so of traction despite the prices that they're, they're selling their vehicles for. There's just not a lot that they're doing in terms of production. They're limited right. with what they can do. And people are still paying up, as you said, Phil. But I wonder the demand side of this. People have been willing to pay up when supply's been tight over the last few years. But what do you expect that to look like as we head into the back half of this year? I don't think it's slowing down. Maybe at the lower end of the market, and we're starting to see that on the used vehicle side, but on the new market, I don't see it slowing down. 
We'll see what the economy brings us for the fourth quarter as well. Phil LeBeau, thank you very much. Meanwhile, markets still in the red. The Dow down by about 78 points. That does it for The Exchange. Power Lunch starts right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.